The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. And welcome, everybody, to Positive Talk Radio. That last line just always makes me giggle. I don't know why. I should not let it uh, do that to me. But we got a great show for you today. And um, this is one of those shows that's going to make you think a little bit. And uh, it's it's going to be... It's gonna I think really helpful. Eric is, is giving me the I'm thinking look in the background. So, Eric, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well. Happy Wednesday, Kevin. And uh, yeah, well, you know, I'm always thinking and I, I assume you're doing the same. So, yeah, exactly. You know, and today's um, uh, topic that we're going to be talking about, I admired you way back 18 years ago when you drove an electric car and you did that because you wanted to do your part well i guess maybe i shouldn't put words in your mouth why did you drive an electric car back then? <laughs> well back then it was a hybrid so it yes. was an electric car but uh now i'm a full-fledged electric car so yeah it's it's just the smart way to do a uh, smart way to commute it, it it is and it's not only is it better, cheaper I, easier and better I, for the environment which is which is the thing that we are going to be talking about a great deal today on this show. So, but before we go there, spoil alert! Spoil alert! You know what Sunday is? Mother's Day. Ooh, somebody is sitting in their car in traffic, going, "Oh crap! I forgot <laughs> it's Mother's Day coming up." That's right. And so, I I have a suggestion for you. Um, first of all, Holly Berry, who is a, a consultant who works with me. She and uh, uh, she loves Lex and uh, our guest today, and would like to be here. But she also has a, a floral business. Oh, this and is her con- busy time of the year for sure. So consequently, she is otherwise detained <laughs> for day today, and will be all the way through the weekend. But I encourage you. Um, now, this is something. Now, I'm as as Forrest Gump used to say. I don't know nothing about nothing. But I do know something about this, and that is that uh, my ex-wife was a floral arranger and and worked in the floral industry for probably 10 or 15 years, and she was very talented at what she does. And uh, Holly, uh, who operates a natural design out of Bothell. And you can just go to a natural design.com and, uh, you can, you can order stuff online and it'll be delivered wherever you want it to go in, in a, in the Northern, you know, Seattle area. And, uh, my sister got a, um, I sent my sister an arrangement from Holly and she said, that is so beautiful. That is so much better than the person that was in the floral industry for like 15 years. So, so I can guarantee you that, that if you um, are sitting in your car going, Oh crap, what do I do? Call a natural design. 
they will they will help you and it'll it'll work out well um so a natural design.com is where you go her name is holly berry and uh, i hope that you'll do that uh, our guest today and eric you're welcome to participate in this show because this is this really is kind of right up you right up your alley um les amore is with us and she is with biomimicry which is a company out of montana and she is fortunately doesn't have to work and play in montana because they don't have beaches there so she works out of hawaii uh, lex welcome how are you i'm doing well kevin thanks for having me you must have been practicing you said biomimicry well well that is a challenging feat to do I have been doing that in my sleep the last 24 <laughs> hours. And uh, because biomimicry is, uh, I really think it is a company whose time is coming. Its time is now. And I don't know if you've noticed the the weather that we're having and, and stuff, but the time is now for us to make some changes. And, uh, you know, and Eric, I know that uh, in the 20th century, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we as a society and a scientific community, we spent most of the 20th century believing that we could outdo nature, that we could do a better job than uh, nature has done with creating things, with how things work. And, uh, and we're finding out now, uh-uh, we can't either. So it's, it's a problem for, for us. Don't you think, Eric? Uh, you know, often the natural thing is the better thing to, to do, sure. But, you know, I think it varies. I, I, I couldn't really, you know, get to work uh, in under an hour if I was going with the natural thing being my legs so <laughs> going with the man-made vehicle you know i think uh, outdid nature in that case but uh, i think you're thinking of something specific here so i'll let you elaborate on that well and I, i'm gonna let lex elaborate a lot more but um what what we need to be doing rather than trying to defeat nature we need to be working with nature because there are reasons why, as an example, a bumblebee who they say is not, is, is, it should not be able to fly, yet it does. Um, and if we took some of those principles and applied them to our scientific community and what we're doing in the future, it probably would be, we'd be better served. And Lexa Mori, um, she's the communications director for, uh, biomimicry and, uh, and she's got, they've got a whole bunch of projects that they're working on that will actually mimic nature hence the name biomimicry am i am i even close lex you're so close you're you're there kevin there's just one thing i have to bring up there's this weird distinction as if we humans are not nature and that's something that we're also trying to change we are part of the animal kingdom when we're talking about emulating nature we're also talking about incorporating some of the amazing thoughts and ideas that have come out of the human brain. We're talking about modeling neuroplasticity, synapses. We're talking about the microbiome in your gut. There's so much that is organic and animal about us humans. And part of biomimicry is, yes, we're translating these amazing design strategies that nature has mastered over long before humans or homo sapiens have walked the planet. 
but we're also talking about reconnecting with our place in the natural world. That's then, Eric. What do you think? I love it. <laughs> I, I I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly because I don't know if, and I know you too have noticed, but uh, I was talking with a friend who was on coast to coast day before yesterday, and she was in a hotel because there were forest fires in New Mexico all over the place, and she was scared that she wasn't going to get reception because uh, the the air was brown, the sun was red uh, on top because there was so much smoke in the air and stuff. She said that had never happened before. It happened here two years ago, didn't it, Eric? I mean, we've certainly seen, yeah, that quite an increase in the amount of, you know, deadly forest fires and wildfires for sure. So what we have to do is that we have to figure out a way to run our planet in a much more natural designed way. Don't you think, Lex? That's what you guys are at your core working to do, isn't it? Absolutely. And wildfires, that's something that whether or not it's the Pacific Northwest or coast of California, there's it is becoming there's fire season now. And so when we're talking about biomimicry, it's. It's a design methodology. Yes, you scope a problem. Let's say they are uh, being able to protect houses, for example, or even safety response to seeing when fire is coming up close so that people have time to evacuate. But then you discover ways nature has solved for these similar challenges. Like, for example, a redwood tree, it actually needs fire to open up its seeds And so there's, we can reverse engineer and see what do we have to learn there? And so ultimately what we're doing is we're creating ideas inspired by these discoveries. And then we evaluate the solution to see just how well it fits into the context that will live and the ecosystem that's going to affect. But it's also a a philosophy. It's seeing humans as interconnected with the natural world. It's going back to this truth that we are animals. It's about it's about coming home to the natural world and living in a way that is so deeply interconnected, evolving and authentically whole. And I actually really appreciate you bringing up the example too, but we're talking about fires. And so we know that you know, in recent years, problem of wildfires in California has increased. Residents are, they're witnessing thousands more, millions of acres burned. And so a, one of our programs that we work with is called the Youth Design Challenge. And we give K through 12 educators the tools that they need to bring this kind of thinking into their classrooms. So one team, uh, it's called the Fire Forewarner. They developed a design concept. This is a middle school team. And it's, it's a device that aims to help bring these numbers of wildfires down. So it's solar powered box that contains a protected circuit board and a flame retardant capsule with a high temperature glue on the lid. This is kind of complex, but I'll, I'll dig into it. So when the temperatures reach high enough to melt the glue on the lid, the box opens and immediately sends a signal to the nearest fire department, warning them of the fire. And then the capsules are used to contain the fire in the meantime. So this team found inspiration from what they call the Banskia. It's a tree. It's a seed pods, which release seeds when the cones are heated, similar to redwoods, to a certain temperature. And then the bark uh, is used in similar ways for they model the way that the insulation uh, keeps the contain inside the box. And so, of course, this is used in application here, and all things would be considered from the material chemistry 
but imagine the potential of these two middle school students an engineering perspective at such a young age and influence to support and connect with nature and not cause this kind of unnecessary side effects from some of the destruction that can be made and to get to work on a problem in a, like their local community. It's so inspiring to see what kids can use their imagination for in solving real world challenges like this. They were middle school children? Middle school. We're talking seventh grade. That's, that's amazing. As, and you have got a, programs that you work with middle schools and high schools all over the country, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we work, we're, we're U.S. based for this challenge just because the curriculum for education is obviously different in other countries, but it's actually international. So we have dozens of international submissions that come in. Uh, one of my favorite ones. So we actually just announced the winners of this year's challenge. And so they work with their teachers throughout the semester and ultimately come up with a design concept where these kids create prototypes. They actually call their local representatives. They engage with the community. And one of the, one of my favorite examples is actually from one of the international teams. And so it was a a high school group out of Korea and they came up with this environmentally friendly concept. So grass needs to decay biologically in order for new healthy grass to grow. When it doesn't decay properly, desertification results. So the solution typically has been burn the fields, expedite the decaying process. You see this all over the Midwest. But the problem with that is it actually can release some excess carbon and methane into the atmosphere, which when you're having rising temperatures from resulting from climate change, you kind of want to diminish that a little bit. So this group came up with a solution where they created this land trampling structure to mimic the movement of herds in the grassland. Herd movement through grasslands can be a healthy alternative to burning fields because as the herd passes by, they redistribute nutrients across the field and break down the soil. But sometimes overgrazing can also result in more desertification. So the structure they conceived is flexible. It's sturdy like banana leaves, and it's lined on the surface with hundreds of hollow, rigid spines inspired by the tongue of a cat. And their design can be used to create any shape to add to agricultural tools and help with the process of revitalizing fresh, healthy grass. Like, isn't this just insane? Like, this is amazing concepts that are coming out from kids from around the world. And what we're doing is giving them the tools to think critically about how they're connected to their community, how could they can come up with these solutions. And it's just mind blowing. It's that's, that's so cool. <laughs> I just have to say, because the, and the important, you know, I talked to, I'm a little older now, so I don't get to talk to as many kids as I used to, but, but I'm always apologetic because we put them in this position, but they're taking on the challenge of understanding that things cannot go status quo and they, and so the youth may save us. Isn't that remarkable? It is. It's fascinating. And it's honestly, for me, it gives me so much hope because I feel like not only does biomimicry give you the skills to say, this is the problem that we have right now. Let's solve for this context, regardless if it's five years from now or whatever the context may be, but it's also empowering so many young people to actually take hold of their present, 
not having to wait to a certain age to make an impact. They get to create solutions and be part of the, the solution uh, process now and be able to set them up for the rest of their lives, knowing that they are part of the natural and they can come up with uh, these kinds of really innovative approaches to solve pretty much anything that they face. Another one is, you know, the, we've got rising temperatures. We've been talking about this already enough today where it's, we know climate change is happening. And in those places where heat is already at a very uncomfortable point for humans, it's only going to get worse. So another middle school team out of San Jose in California, they came up with this concept called the cacti shirt. And it's a design that passively cools a person down with a shirt that incorporates these microscopic folds, just like desert cacti. So if you look at a desert cacti, there are these ridges and troughs, and it's all intentional. It's all about managing that radiating heat. So to increase the surface area, so that they can allow more heat to radiate. So the cacti shirt is designed to be lighter in color so it won't absorb as much as heat as darker colors, just as chameleons can change to a lighter color when they get hot. It's just like very, very cool ideas. That is remarkable. So you guys, now do you guys come up with the ideas and say, here's the problem, you guys fix it, or do you allow them to just let their imaginations go wild? We give them a framework where this year we finally got really clear on before it was we would do challenges like look at food systems, look at climate change. And what we really found was kids care locally. They want to be able to have an influence on their community. And what better way than to align with the sustainable development goals created by the United Nations. And so now our framework is, is pick any of these 17 goals find a problem that is affecting your local community and then get to problem solving and creating ideas. So the benefit of that also is that they feel more invested and they can also continue to work on this problem as whether or not they want to, you know, actually create a company of this one day and make it a reality. You know, it's interesting. Things are changing. And uh, I interviewed a gentleman who is in Madagascar and Madagascar apparently is going through a huge uh, drought. And so there are a million people at risk of starvation. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what they did is they looked at the natural diet of these folks and they found that they ate things like crickets and, and other bugs as part of their natural diet. And so they took it upon themselves to farm them and then put them into a protein powder he, he was really cute. He said, he said, you know, we let them live their normal lifespan before we kill them. And then, and then we take them and we put them into a protein powder. And then we use that to make soups and to make other things to expand the food that the, that people will eat. And then we take the, I didn't realize this, but, uh, apparently there's a lot of, a lot to be said for cricket poop as far as, uh, being a great fertilizer and to regenerate stuff <laughs> you're sitting there so this is i'm telling you something that you already know uh, are amazing yes <laughs> <laughs> and so he's actually built they're building farms so that they can supplement and feed a million people and the crickets eat waste 
So it's not like they're eating grains and and corn and that's the kind of, they're eating the the waste products and they're 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 taking the poop and they're using it for fertilizer. It's it's just amazing. And, and that's a systems perspective. That's the beautiful part about that is it's looking at what are all the implications here. How can we model what what can we do that's actually regenerative for this particular ecosystem? And uh, he also mentioned that they have a bug down there. Maybe you've heard about this, that it's called the bacon bug. I haven't about this. Tell me yeah. more. Apparently it tastes just like bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so if we run out of pigs, we can always use the bacon bug uh, to, to supplement our diet. But uh, now do you think, and I was talking about him with talking to him about this. Do you think as Americans that we would ever go to the store and buy a uh, cricket protein powder that is supposed to be really, really, really good for you and, well, and use it? For what it's worth, that's already happening. I mean, grouping Americans into one group, as you know, that is not something that is really a thing. We are a very diverse culture in, in our country. And there's, I, as someone, I'm plant-based myself. Uh, the only kinds of uh, animals I eat are ones that are caught locally out in the water down here, the island. Uh, but I've had chocolate covered crickets and it was delicious. Earthworms, also a thing, packed in protein. But we're coming back to like, is this sustainable? Is there a way? Like what you were talking about with grazing or, you know, for, um, I'm sorry, the being able to have land for feeding other animals. That's clearly not sustainable when we're talking about water and just the resources that go into it. Exactly. But the thing about whether or not it's diet or just any kind of lifestyle, there are so many different ways to connect with the natural world. And I, I talk about this a lot where, you know, when we're talking about the concept of biomimicry, it was, it's a term that was popularized in the late 90s by a book written by Janine Benyus, which, by the way, crazy enough to think that it's been 25 years since that book was published. And we are celebrating that later this month. But that's not a new concept. It's something that's dated way back from the beginning of human time. There was some weird thing that happened along the way where we started trying to control nature and try to domesticate, try to destroy destroy some aspects of it, but really we were, it went from being trying to stay safe to trying to then control everything. And obviously there has been many repercussions because of that, but there are so many different ways to practice biomimicry and one being indigenous peoples alive today, like the Maoria tribe in New Zealand or the Kanaka O'ihi people that are here in the islands of Hawaii that never abandoned their connection to place and the value that they put on all life in nature. So regardless of how you're sourcing your food or whatever you're trying to do, it's really about coming back to like, what's your sphere of influence? Where do you live? What lands do you touch? How can you just start creating an environment in your sphere of influence that is supportive for other life to exist. And I, I say that very broad because every context is different, but really what we're trying to say is we are one species out of many. And if we can change the way that we make choices so that we're acknowledging that, and recognizing that our actions have consequences, 
then no matter how we look at it, we're going to be better off. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I was sitting here going, we spent the 20th century trying to outdo what nature does. And so we, as an example, created plastics. Uh, now, out in the Pacific Ocean, there is this place where the, the go ahead. There are seven. I know there where are, you're headed. There are seven. Go ahead, please, Kevin. Tell 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 everyone listening what we're talking about here. Then we'll come back to the positive side. Yes, in the Pacific Ocean, there are because of the way the tides work, it tends to uh, group things together, and they create almost like a island that you can walk on of of plastics and garbage and stuff like that and so we're thinking that nature is being defeated by that but you know what's happening i just saw a report on this just the other day that there are now organisms and life forms that are being created in that because nature will find a way so resilient it's 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 it really is amazing, and so now some scientists are saying, no, let's leave it there and see what the hell happens. That would be that would be a lot more fun than and because it, it, we're seeing new life, and in 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 fact, new life is being created there, um, because of our ineptitude and to create these things that live like I don't know forever, um, you know that it's working out and nature's nature cannot be denied i guess is my point do you agree yeah. with that yeah absolutely i well i don't know about leaving it there i think that there's a way for us to still affect change yes uh, but what we're learning is there's all kinds of organisms that can eat the plastic but it's not as easy you know as the amount of time that we need for it right. to not have such a destruction on the ecosystem. Like for example, I, I swim with a lot of Hanu over here. Those are uh, green sea turtles. They're sacred on the islands and they eat jellyfish and they look exactly like plastic bags. And it's, it's a real challenge and it's heartbreaking to see how whale stomachs have collected all of this plastic. And what we're really seeing here is there are massive problems. And at this time, maybe some out there might immediately want to shut down, stick their head in the sand because it's daunting. When you actually start to think about all of the problems we have, it can be daunting. But that's where I come back to hope. I come back to the fact that there are so many amazing humans working on these problems throughout the world. And connecting with place and, and finding inspiration from whether or not it's bacteria that eat plastic or, um, you know, mushrooms that are able to create insulation and packaging and replace our need for plastic in the first place. Like there's so many concepts that we get to learn from and get connected to. And so that's where I keep coming back. Come back to the hope, come back to the solutions and look at the problems that we have, be realistic about it, but know that we we actually can get ourselves out of this if we come together. And what we've been talking about a lot lately is just putting nature back into human nature. Let's change our behavior so that we stop separating ourselves from this place that we're connected to and start wherever we can. You know, I also learned another good fact just the other day, and you're talking about non-sustainable non things. 
Did you know that the clothes that we wear and the uh, polyesters and the synthetic things that they use is the second leading use of oil behind uh, energy burning and, and cars? I mean, it's a, it's a huge it's a huge waste of oil that we are putting into clothes when we have got natural solutions that uh, like hemp and other things that we can be using. Is that it? Was that report correct? Yes, it was correct. It is unfortunate that I, I actually do know this. And one of the other things that is not often as talked about is when one of the one of the things with the circular economy that's been really big is and basically what that is, is uh, I started out of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and it's looking to how can we design our entire economy so that it has this idea of a closed loop. Uh, another point of reference is cradle to cradle. Uh, so it's looking at rather than a linear system where you take things, you make them, and then you waste it, basically throwing it away. They wanted to close the loop. So when we're talking about fashion, there's both like what the materials are made out of, but then it's also what's the whole use here? What happens at the end there? And so a lot of the approaches now are why don't we take plastic water bottles, because they're technically, you can re-thread them into clothing because it's also oil-based and then trying to design our clothes to be using these recycled products. And for years, I kept having this, my mind was trying to make sense of it. So it was put it in this box of saying, this is a closed loop. This is what we're trying to do, right? There's no concept of waste in nature. We're just trying to close the loop on the design. With cradle to cradle, we talk about biological nutrients and technical nutrients. So we've got the, the hemp versus the zipper on your jeans. How can you separate those so that you can reuse them or biodegrade them? And what I recently learned was it's not that simple. Because in nature, there also is no actual closed loop because everything leaks. Everything is interconnected. And one of the mishaps that we've done in our design is when we put that recycled plastic water bottle into that T-shirt that has new threads and supposed to have new life, as soon as you wash it, then those microplastics are getting into the water. And it's an unfortunate side effect that's happening from this. And there are people at work doing it. We're, we're working on a design for decomposition initiative that directly looks at this problem and partnering with different countries and brands around the world to start thinking about this in a, in a holistic way. But the problem remains is that ultimately we got to slow down. Like they call it fast fashion for a reason. There's trends that go on and on. And you're, you know, if you're not in style, then you're missing out. And it was great when people were saying, let's go thrifting. And that's our new trend. But still (laughs) there's a whole issue with the, the speed that we are running to make decisions. And if everyone just slowed down to just think like, what is the impact of what we're doing here? How can we Think about the unintended consequences that might happen. And yeah, how are we going to fix some of the problems that we have today, but not do it in a way that's going to create other consequences along the process? It's a it's an iterative journey and it's it's imperfect. But that's it's like where we need to take all the baby steps and do everything all at once. It may seem like a lot, but it's just the reality of where we're at. The unintended consequences of what we do 
uh, with everything that we do is amazing. Uh, as an example, in a lot of cases, the clothes that we wear are not, they have a lot of chemicals in them that they're not necessarily bound to ex, to put out there. And the FDA doesn't watch it. The, the Food and Drug Administration doesn't watch it. And, and so the clothes that you're putting on may actually be toxic to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and if you say, well, it's on the outside, it's clothes, I'd like to give you an example. Why, does they, why do they have nicotine patches? Because the nicotine goes through your skin into your bloodstream and that gives you the nicotine high, I guess, that you're, that you're looking for. So you could be wearing clothes that have chemicals in them because they decide they're going to try a new thing. They haven't, exp- they haven't looked at the chemicals enough to know whether or not they're going to be, I don't know, cancer-causing mm-hmm. or there's going to be a problem. Um, and so you could be the recipient of that. And that's an unintended consequence, right. uh, but it can be rather deadly. It's so important that you bring that up, Kevin, because there's there's so many aspects of it that are, it's just complicated. It's a wicked challenge for a reason. And we are surrounded by, not to scare anyone out there, but like we're, we're pretty surrounded by all kinds of things that have cancer causing properties. And so it's the accumulation of this in our blood that ends up having a negative effect. And an unfortunate thing happened in the late seventies where they passed a bill uh, that was trying to aim for safe chemistry. And so on this bill, they, they thought, well, there are thousands and we're talking like it's some crazy number, like 80,000 chemicals that were already out in the world. So they're like, well, these are already out in the world. So they must be safe. So they wrote those in to the safe chemistry act and to overturn legislature is challenging. Yeah, and yeah. so one of the chemicals in there was asbestos and so oh that's a good idea and that's just one but if you think about your your conditioners your shampoos there are things called parabens in there um there's carcinogens in a lot of toothpaste there are all kinds of things that we just don't know but my my concern is you shouldn't have to be a chemist and walk into the drugstore to get a bottle of shampoo to know that it's safe for you and that's where we have a very challenging problem to overtake when it comes to green chemistry, safe chemistry, like how, how things not only can degrade, but how they're not causing these kinds of negative repercussions inside of our bodies. It can be pretty daunting. As a matter of fact, in the neck of the woods where I live, I live in Seattle. And those of you that have lived in Seattle and Tacoma, Eric lives in Tacoma, um, Tacoma used to be called the aroma of Tacoma because they had a smelter there that operated for years and years and years and years. And I remember when I was a kid that they and, and Eric, do you, you remember when people used to call Tacoma, the aroma of Tacoma? Sure. It, it wasn't the smelter though, that uh, caused the, the odor. It was the, uh, the paper plant. Uh, the paper ah. processing uh, in the Fife area that created that. Yes, but are you also aware that the... The uh, Sarco smelter, yes, that came down in the 90s, thankfully. Yes, but, emitted yes. arsenic mm-hmm. in large quantities, and it is into this day, it is in the soil of Tacoma and in surrounding areas and in the playgrounds, and they, they, they it is so widespread that 
nobody talks about it because there's nothing that they They really did a very good job of cleaning it up, though, I got to say. And now where that used to stand is Point Ruston, which is uh, an amazing housing development and shopping center and a, a real natural beauty. Uh, and they expanded uh, Point Defiance Park. And so it's completely changed from what it used to be. It's amazing. It, and which is really cool, which I'm glad they've done that. Tacoma, and by the way, Tacoma is a really cool place to live, isn't it, Eric? Yeah, it, uh, for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got drawbacks well, just like every other place on the planet, for sure. I would say the same thing about Seattle because, you know, it's it's got good places and it's got not mm-hmm. so good places. But but in any event, that, that, that smelter, they didn't think of that years ago that that was going to be a problem. But it, it but it became one because it was unintended consequences of what we did. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's also and- really unfortunate that the reality is a lot of these plants and a lot of the um, real challenging industrial um, effects and even the resulting smog and the pollution, they end up being around many communities of indigenous peoples and people of color. And they are inadvertently affected from a drastic rate of affecting um, from the results of climate change and this pollution and this contaminated water. And it's something that we're only now really starting to see headlines about it, but not enough action, not nearly enough action is actually being done for these communities, but they are the ones that have the worst consequences of what's going on. And I'm sure the neighborhood is great and what's come of it. And uh, admittedly, my first instinct is, can the people that lived there before still afford to live there? And that's maybe they can, but I want to come back to like how we can also make sure that the revitalizing the lands are supporting the communities that are are challenged in the first place by some of these again unintended consequences and i i just want to mention to everybody by the way you're listening to positive talk radio if you want to find out more about us you can go to positive talk radio.net uh, and also if you want to find out more about biomimicry you can go to biomimicry.com right dot org dot org doggone it <laughs> i had a one and three shot. Anyway, so <laughs> biomimicry.org. But I want to I want to just point out that um, in my adult life, we've talked about global warming. There was uh, Al Gore was talking about uh, the intended consequences 20 years ago, and they were always looking at it as, well, you know, that's in the future. If we're not careful, this is what's going to happen. And, uh, well, I'm sad to report to you today that the future is here. It is no longer a theoretical it is no longer a maybe it is here i have never seen in my life a a stage four tornado in december go 120 miles on the ground that is unheard of even for here which has the most tornadoes of anywhere but it's happening. We've got wildfires. We've got uh, places that are going to become what it's, <laughs> this is kind of morbid, but there was a lake uh, and I think it was Lake Mead. I can't remember, but it has the water level has gone down so much that they found a body in a barrel of somebody that had been shot and killed decades ago and buried or and dumped in the water. And now it has it the water level is so low that it became it 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 was on on the uh, um beach 
Wow, you weren't kidding, Kevin. That is a little morbid. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But the the problem is just in on positive talk radio. <laughs> there was a body found in a in a barrel. Yeah, it was like shooting people. In, well, never mind. Uh, but but my point is is that the water level had never been that low, and and so consequently, uh, we have got we are going to have and it, what does in the research that you're doing and with the timelines that you guys are are talking about where are we in your opinion Ooh, that's a very big metaphysical philosophical conversation where are we on this this planet that's spinning out in the middle of the of space no i think <laughs> that <laughs> i know i, I caught you by surprise i'm sorry <laughs> about that well i you know i come back to i actually I am, I'm 32. I learned about climate change for the first time a decade ago. I went to a good school, even at the undergrad level, we had talked about weather and climate and I never, never learned about climate change in those courses. It wasn't until I had moved to California and, and was exposed to sustainability and what that really meant. And when I first learned, the first thing I thought was like, what, what's been happening the last few decades? What I, this people, I'm sorry, Rachel, Rachel came out with the, in the seventies of silent spring. Like what, what are people doing? How is not everyone panicking right now? And then I realized, um, they have been working really hard and a lot of progress has been made. And since then I'll admit when I, the first four or five years after first learning about climate change, I fell deep in despair. I had so much climate grief. Like I didn't know what to do. And I felt paralyzed. I was working with a sustainability PR firm. I was working with incredible innovators from renewable energy to even like fusion energy of people trying to come up with some solutions. And I still felt like we are doomed. And then I found biomimicry and I realized, oh no, wait, there's actually, we're not trying to go back. We're not trying to go back before the industrial revolution. We're not trying to change things to before what it was. What we need to do is look at where we're at right now and try and just reestablish some kind of balance, knowing that we have created new kinds of plastics and different kinds of materials. And we've changed biospheres in ways that you can't go back. And so where we're at, I'd say there's never been more attention to human impacting climate change than there is today. There's never been more youth that have access to this kind of education. I'm working with nature-inspired startups that are creating water purification devices inspired by aquaporin proteins that are a hundred times more efficient than current technology or a spider mimicking process that creates natural silk that's fiber that's stronger than uh, the fiber synthetics or lighter, stronger composite materials modeled by shrimp. Like there's so many cool things that are coming out into the world. And we have asknature.org, which is just filled with thousands of biological strategies. And right now, admittedly, I'm on a different kind of community high because I get to be part of this global network where I'm curating dozens and dozens of videos 
from pit, from people from around the world as we're nearing this May 20th event where everyone's talking about the work that they're doing everywhere from India to South Africa to I have people that are talking about amazing things of how this kind of reconnection with the natural world and problem solving has changed their life. So yeah, I wish things were done yesterday. I wish that we didn't have so much opposition for being able to make these kinds of changes. I wish that different kinds of people were in power so that they would start prioritizing the well-being of all, all life. And I'd like to say, sure, 2030, that's our cutoff. But really, we are on a trajectory where we're, we're heading toward more unstable climate. And the best thing that we can do right now is not get so thrown by the object of trying to reach a deadline and instead just try to make the steps now. Just do what we can right now. Find that peace. Find that reconnection to the natural world. Find hope so that you actually feel like you can do something about it. Because otherwise, if we just keep the fear mongering going and then opposing people and trying to fight each other about all the things we're never going to get anywhere. That's beautifully said. Eric, you look like you had a comment. Did you have a comment? Oh, no, I'm just loving this uh, conversation. So, yeah, that I agree wholeheartedly with everything that uh, you're saying there. So. Well, you know, uh, by the way, this is Lex Amore with uh, Biomimicry. And I am a firm believer in the, in the ingenuity of the human species that but unfortunately we're not forward thinking enough to figure out in advance we have to wait until there's some sort of a calamity and then we'll deal with it and yeah, unfortunately uh, you could look at that with um health you know i i thought for the longest time during this climate grief all the things i was like i can do everything on my own i'm an independent strong woman and then it wasn't until I injured my back where I slipped a vertebra over the one below it, ruptured a few discs, and I became bed rest real quick. And I realized maybe I could do it on my own, but I don't want to. But it changed my entire perspective. It wasn't until I had a massive injury that changed everything in my entire life that I started thinking about things. And a lot can be said about a lot of other people, where they, whether or not it's a, a car accident or an illness that they don't look at their lives and they don't think about some of these things and the things that we should never take for granted, like walking and breathing and, <laughs> and these things that, yeah, it's unfortunate that a lot of people don't realize. So like, that's why we're here today to inspire people to not have to wait until it's too late, whether or not it's for their health or the impacts that their industry has on the rest of the world. And you can start it as an individual, making individual decisions that are better for you, better for your environment, better for, uh, and quite frankly, if you are a decision maker at home, if you're a mom, by the way, happy Mother's Day, uh, but you have the ability to make decisions that, and nutritional decisions that will impact your kids for the rest of their lives. Yes, absolutely, 100%. And, I, and at the same time, I'll admit, I also got to give out a shout out to the moms who are just trying to get by. I mean, my own mom, she is a saint. I adore her. She is 
She taught me how to love unconditionally, which is literally why I changed my last name legally to love because I wanted to live an intention of love. Uh, but at the same time, growing up, like she was, she was working. My parents were full-time working and most nights we had fast food and it wasn't until I you know, was in high school. I think when I could start to drive that I started making different kind of dietary choices, but the thing is, is that they don't know better often. And so how can we go back to having that tribe mentality where we recognize that mom shouldn't have to do it all on their own, that there's a community that we can come together and help support each other. And that we're all just trying to do the best that we can. And that's worth celebrating. That's absolutely true. And and most of the time people trust our food makers to put something that's quality on the table. And I can tell you, I used to be work in the chicken industry and I can, I can tell you that, uh, if you, if you're a fan of chicken nuggets, it's, um, made from mechanically deboned meat, uh, which means you're not sure exactly what's in there. quite frankly, unless, unless it is a bona fide chicken breast, which they don't use for chicken nuggets very often. So there is lots and lots of, but the, and, but so eat as best you can. It's hard to get stuff that, you know, I mean, we're even talking about, there's a couple of folks that come on the show and we're talking about ways of fasting or ways of cleansing your system because of all the toxins that we take in on a daily basis that, that'll help you. So research those sorts of things, do it for yourself, do it for your family. It will do you good and you'll feel better yeah. and, and you may actually even live a little longer. Yeah. And you can tailor it. So there's all these like fads and things that happen and it doesn't, it's not a one, you know, fasting might not work for everyone or there's you know, the different kinds of nutritions that is going to affect other people. And so it's just about learning what's good for your body. And part of that is an added benefit is again, we're coming home to ourselves. This is your vessel. This is the one body you get in this life. And it's worth learning how they function in this world and honoring that experience so that you can do all the fun things or, you know, serve in a way that is really going to make a difference. Absolutely. And do your research. There's a, there's enough places and biomimicry, your, your website, which is biomimicry.org. You can go there and you can get all kinds of information about just a ton of stuff because these folks are really committed to making a change for our planet and for each individual that lives on the planet. Don't you? Thank you, Kevin. It is. It's something that I get asked a lot when they're like, okay, so I work in uh, chemistry. I work in architecture. I work in processes. I work in HR, communications, food systems, but can really biomimicry help me? And I'll, yes, always. Biomimicry literally can affect every kind of industry, every kind of problem, because it is about just looking to nature, ourselves, our place in this world, and coming to a conclusion that says, yeah, this is supportive for life. So we have a bunch of resources on there. We have different kinds of, um, for educators, for uh, startups, for uh, just the general public, we recently put out a community guide to say, like, hey, what are the basics of biomimicry? How can you start asking nature in your community? I did a scavenger hunt once 
uh, in a park with the local community where we just looked and said, like, how does nature send signals? How does nature create color? All these things that it's just starting to, what Janine says, quiet your cleverness and to go outside and to learn a little bit deeper. You know, earlier in the program, you talked about redwood trees. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we have the technology to make one. No, but do we even want to? We don't need to repeat the wheel. But no. I love redwood trees so much. One of my favorite facts about them is they're giant, as everyone knows. But did you know that their roots only go down about four feet, but they spread out for miles and interweave into each other and they share resources and there's this whole community under the soil? But how is this massive tree literally only going down into the ground with roots that are four feet deep. How can we mimic that resilience and that strength? You just said the magic word. It's a, it brings a sense of community. If we recognize that we are totally interconnected, that if, if one of us dies, we all die. If all of, if one of us lives, we all live and that we are all one and that we are all connected and that our group is everybody if we could get that through our heads think about how the world would change today if we believed that everybody was our brother and that that we weren't going to hurt anybody deep wisdom there so good kevin because that is and that is in my opinion that's the secret to changing the world is recognizing the divine plan nature you know i had a guy say i i we were talking about spiritual issues and uh, i brought up nature and he said well nature's different and i said excuse me he said well no nature's different nature's something else and they said do you do you poop and he said, well, yeah, and so, so you're an animal, and so you're part of nature. Everything everything is interconnected. There is no place that we can go that's not connected to something else. Yes. We get to choose, and it's a great choice. We get to choose whether or not we are going to live in harmony and peace with everyone or whether we are going to uh, divide ourselves into tribes and then we're going to uh, decide who gets what and, and try and steal from the other guy. We get to choose. And I, I really hope that we're getting to a place in time where we will choose to be together and to work together because that's the only thing that makes sense to me. I love your emphasis on choice. It is so critically important. It's all about, you know, there's, we, we perceive our entire reality and what we think, what we do, we are actively creating our moments. And so many people get stuck in living in the past or the future. And if they recognize that right now, this moment right here, this is your choice. This is your ability to show up for yourself, to show up for your life and be able to make an active participation in it. It's so empowering. And if yes, making choices to say, I'm going to honor myself. I'm going to honor my existence here interconnected with the rest of this world in that there are lovely living species. There's other, other living humans in my own species and that we are all in this together. I just feel immediately like if, if all, if I could adopt one law that everyone had to be able to make the choice to look at their lives as interconnected with the rest of the world, we all of our problems would be solved. 
I couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. As a matter of fact, we've got one minute, and uh, but there was a uh, a gal when I did the show in 2003. She was a four-time cancer survivor. She came on the show, and I asked her what the secret to life was, and she said, "Well, if you have one foot in the past and one foot in the future, you're peeing on the present. Live in the present." Yes. And so, so, um. Lexamori's been our guest. Biomimicry is the company, biomimicry.org. Go there and please um, take care of each other. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, Lex, will you come back and do this again? I would love to. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Go outside. It's a beautiful day here in town. Go outside and have a good time. And go touch a tree and watch it vibrate. Thank you so much, everybody. You have a great day. And remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got. We'll see you Friday with the um, Modern Sages. We'll be here on Friday.